Insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Hey, welcome to I Insight into Instruction, Conclusion Convos. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Fabulous, but you can call me Thomas. Today we introduce a new installment called Conclusion Convos. Like snippets, this is a subcategory to our I podcast. In these segments, we will think back and reflect on conferences, interviews, and in-field experiences. In this episode, we will discuss the 2022 Orate Conference at Western Oregon University with keynote speaker Renee Watson, who's a renowned teaching artist and author. At this conference, we had the opportunity to take part in presenting formative assessments that spark authentic dialogue with our professor, Dr. Jessica Masterson. We also had the privilege of attending select sessions by higher educators from neighboring institutions on whose presentations we will reflect. So let's start out with our amazing keynote speaker, Renee Watson. Um, her young adult novel, Piecing Me Together, received a Coretta Scott King Award and a Newbery Honor. And we were able to sit through a QA with her regarding her collective words about both children's book and young adult novels, as well as her views on black history in schools, selected literature in the classroom, and, and more. And so when I was listening to her talk, one of the first things that was asked was when teachers are thinking about the writing that they assigned, what does she suggest? So do you remember anything specific that you found from that that you guys really liked?
So the other part that I found really interesting was the question, what are things that we keep as writers and educators that we need to give to kids? Um, so the answer to that was adults seem to have a veil and need to bring children into the conversation. So thoughts about that? Definitely. I think by providing them room in that conversation, it provides them both with a view or perspective of what us as teachers are trying to help them do, but also by giving them that conversation, you give them voice and the ability to be self-advocates. And that is going to take them so much further than just your, their one year in your classroom. And it also gives them to have the voice that we do, do have some people of color in your classroom. You're able to have them be heard, like in our class with um, Dr. Raka, and we had the LGBTQ session, I was able to then speak about my experiences, and it was a meaningful impact on all of our, co our, all of our cohort. And I think by having those meaningful conversations as a group with everyone, then we're getting those aspects from all of the children and all of the people in that room, because that room is not just the teachers, it's each one of those students. Yeah. Um, I wrote down one of the things that she said was talk less um, and ask, listen more. Um, and she was talking about how seeing their full humanity and who they are as a people, um, or as an individual, just as a person, which is something that we bring into this podcast and into all of our classes so much, like constantly saying, look at them as benefits, not deficits. Look at them as who they are, for their culture, their language. Um, so it's just that constant, like underlying theme, which it's interesting that that has to even be said, but it's something that people aren't trained on, and so it's not necessarily in the forefront of their minds. Even those who are trained on, even are, like, for example, my practicum has someone who was in this program not even two years ago, and they're not practicing those same things. And you can see that the classroom is has a disarray because um, they're not represented, their voice is not being heard, and they're not part of... The conversations and the like they are part of the learning because they're learning but are they really being heard and it's a lot of teachers speaking and not a lot of students speaking right it's that talking at versus talking to or talking with and it reminds me about how our professor Kim Sanchez Biglin has talked to us a lot about the importance of apologizing to students and she always mentions that Kids don't hear that very often. Kids don't hear adults say that they were wrong and sincerely apologize because adult opinion automatically holds a better, a higher value in most classrooms than children's opinions, even though it's their education. So I think really like making sure that we listen deeply and that we're actually giving that time for the students to actually talk to each other versus us talking at them, even though we've been, it's been repeated so many times to us it's gonna really make a huge difference to for our class management as well as just understanding each and every student. If we don't understand them, how are we gonna teach them? Well, as well as us listening to them as well. Yeah. Um, I think in Shamim or Dr. Raka's class as well, there was an article about the, the black student who was constantly fighting against everything that 
this teacher was teaching because it was like history from white colonizers and history from, you know what I mean? Like every single thing that they were teaching, they're like, this is exactly what we're opposed to. Like this doesn't represent us and this isn't like the story that needs to be told. It's being told over and over and over again and how they're, they're the ones that are amazing and we celebrate them and we have like days off of school for these people who are horrible people. Right. <laughs> um, and why aren't you representing us and why aren't you, you know, like, so taking into account what students are saying and what, uh, what the underlying, whatever their attitude may be towards your teaching is saying, because sometimes it's not verbal. Sometimes it's just an attitude or a behavior that could be telling you something about what you're teaching or how you're teaching. Um, and that's the other part of listening is not just hearing their words, but hearing what they're really saying. Yeah, that's what I really mean about understanding. You need to understand the student fully. Yeah. Where they come from, where, what their lives are, it's at home. Because there's much more than the students that are sitting at the desk every day. They're much more than the name on the roster or the number that's been given to them. Um, and then the last one I want to bring up, she talked about a lot more, but one of the audience questions was, <clears throat> excuse me, was teaching about white advocacy, um, how to lessen white guilt and how, or how, well, how to lessen white guilt. Um, and she started talking about freedom writers and how it's not about who's wrong, but it's about what's right. Um, and brought in actually something that was interesting to me, specifically uh, art making and getting your emotions out through art. That was really an intriguing part for her to bring up and I had heard of the Freedom Writers before in history but I hadn't learned it until I was actually taking college courses at Clark and it made me think about, yes, if we were to teach white advocacy alongside when we teach about the civil rights movement and along these other moments in history, then the focus isn't on white guilt, it's about how can we fix the problem and how can we be allies instead of an us versus them mentality and history has always proven for not even just america but for all around the world that they're all there are always going to be people who look a little bit or who are with people who are allies that are doing stuff we just need to highlight that saying that it's not always been this huge line of division between like for this example, whites and blacks. Mm -hmm. There's always there's always been people on both sides, like um, that have been fighting against or for the same thing, mm -hmm. and like you were saying, highlighting those individuals and saying that this is what like this is all, like there has been white people on black side for a long time, and we are going to continue to do that, and you're going to do that just by understanding and representing the students with books and literature and activities just to be able to help them process everything. But also just like, it's that classroom culture. You have to make sure that you say, like pre like Shamin said, like Shamin ha in her, uh, opened her, sorry, um, opened her classroom up saying, I'm not expecting any of you to feel certain ways about this, but you're gonna feel, it, some of this is gonna feel really hard and this isn't about you, this is nothing about what you did, but this is stuff that's happened in the past. And this is what, what can we do that you know right now that you could do to help us remember what has happened as well as what you can do 
to stop it from happening in the future. And that can look totally different. And it literally can be literally sitting in a classroom, listening to a black student who needs support and finding ways to support that within their community and making sure that they are getting what they can, not as a white savior complex, but more of like making sure you're giving each and every student the most equitable amount of resources so that they are successful. And also teaching your white students that there has been a certain past around what's going on and that there are stuff that's in place because of all the history that's come along that you're responsible for, that you're not, let me emphasize that, that you are not responsible for, but, but you sh everyone should be aware of it. Yeah, and, and she was talking about how um, it's okay for these students to feel guilt and shame and anger. Like, those are fine emotions. Like, you can feel your emotions. You can, um, but sometimes those things are hard as well. So having them talk about characters and um, these things outside of themselves mm -hmm. can sometimes help them come to terms about talking about themselves in in the sense of like this is a my history just in like, a way just like deanna day talked about in literature class having first you don't start with actual history of the person you start with concepts of a book that is disassociated mm -hmm. from themselves so they can better understand those um those attributes of history that are just dark and yeah, Hard. you're not putting yourself out emotionally. Like yeah. There's less emotional yes, risk. Less emo and then also once you get to that emotional risk, talking about what you said about making sure they have an outlet. It could be a journal that they write to you and just let it all out. Mm -hmm. We could set up a pen. You could set up a pen pal for someone who maybe they don't want to write to a white teacher. Maybe they want to write to a black teacher or someone in the black community or someone that they can actually relate to. Then set up, make sure you're facilitating, facilitating that conversation. Um, or art, or um, student discourse, letting them just talk it out to, with one another if they feel comfortable to do so. Inviting families to come in and talk about how they feel. Just like making a huge community and make sure it's a welcoming one. Um, and I do want to mention at the end of that session, she spoke about a book called The Other Talk mm. by Brendan Kiley's. Um, and so if anyone who is listening wants to go check that out, you can go check that book out as well as Renee Watson's. All, she's got a ton of books, um, including the one that I talked about before that won those awards, Piecing Me Together. Um, but she also has children's books along with her young adult novels. She also talked about some websites too. It's called Teach This Poem that helps. Um, and then also it's a website. And then also we need diverse books website to help you really make sure you have your library in your classroom that is diverse for all your students because it's really good to have those those window books as well as mirror books for those students that you may not have a book diverse enough for them to be able to say that's me in that book or I can relate to that person in that book. Remember something key she mentioned when selecting literature was to anchor your lessons in humanity around Black history specifically 
and discussed a book that she partnered with another author to write, Born on the Water, which is amazing because it discusses slavery and black history within America, but it starts with the story in Africa before colonizers came and established who these people were and their lives and the wonderful parts of their culture prior to this ad. So it made you connect to the protagonists of this story as human before they were seen as victims. And one thing I really liked of what she talked about was not only teach about the dark days, a past of a race, but teach about the holistic part of the race, where they come from, what did that look like? Also, like, where is it now? What does that race look like now? What are those people doing now? Um, or not people, but the race in general. And what accomplishments? That don't show all the negative, but show the positive. Show successful African-American people, or even just African people in the world that actually are helping versus keep showing a light on slavery. Yes, teach that history because it's extremely important that we don't really ever go down that path again, but it's not all we should teach. If we're going to teach slavery, we also need to have preface around the room that is there are black scientists, black mathematicians, black people that are making it in this world, not that they were once enslaved. Yeah, um, I wrote down the exact quote that she said, and it was everyday blackness. So the story shouldn't just be about pain and struggle. Like, how do we, she said, how do we center joy? How do we show that everyday life matters as well? Why does a student who's sitting in a classroom want to hear about oppression? And that's all that they hear about who they are, because they aren't just their past. When I was listening to her at the beginning, she started talking about the things that she read when she was in school as a child. And she was talking about things that I read as well, like the all of the Beverly Cleary series mm -hmm. and loved those books. And um, But then she was asking things that we all had thought about during our children's lit class. Like, mm. are we being represented in these stories? Are we feeling validated as a race or as a people in these stories? And yeah, some of us are because we're the majority race, but why is it that these are the only things that we're seeing in our classrooms? And she was from the, she is from the Pacific Northwest, yes. Portland to be exact. And when she was growing up, she never saw herself or the, uh, a black person in the Pacific Northwest. So every time that she writes, um, she writes about someone that is black in the Pacific Northwest mm -hmm. so that she can then give someone else a mirror that is in the Pacific Northwest that is also black. It gives them that mirror that they're like, I am represented in this book. There is some representation of me in this area because that's what she earned for so much when she was younger. And that's what got her into writing. Definitely. And I think it's interesting, too, that you bring up how much she wrote about Portland, because now that she splits her time living in Portland and in New York, she has started writing novels from the perspective of Black women, primarily, in New York. But it took her years of living there to feel comfortable in writing about New York City as a place. And one of her first books she wrote about was about a simple love story and at first I remember she mentioned feeling unsure about whether or not to write about it because it didn't seem deep enough and that's mm -hmm. where she said probably one of my favorite uh, quotes from her whole session and it talks about black joy as you mentioned Jamie and it says 
love is deep, joy is deep, and how it started off as a simplistic story and she still found ways to make it deep and meaningful and that can be enough. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure, I think you said it, Jamie, but center around um, black joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she said, how do we center joy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you were talking about the the whole PNW when you're not seeing yourself represented. She said something of, um, she said it's a form of erasure, which is was a something that kind of hit me because I was like, it's not that they're erasing them. It's just that they're not represented. They're not but the, but by not representing, past. you are erasing that. It's basically like saying you don't matter. And I was like, what? I didn't even think of it that way, you know, like just because we're not tr- we're not trained to think of it that way. So the other part that I found really interesting was the question, what are things that we keep as writers and educators that we need to give to kids? The answer to that was adults seem to have a veil and need to bring children into the conversation. So thoughts about that. Definitely. I think by providing them room in that conversation, it provides them both with a view or perspective of what us as teachers are trying to help them do, but also by giving them that conversation, you give them voice and the ability to be self-advocates. And that is going to take them so much further than just your their one year in your classroom. And it also gives them to have the voice that you do have some people of color in your classroom. You're able to have them be heard. Like in our class with um, Dr. Raka, and we had the LGBTQ session, I was able to then speak about my experiences and it was a meaningful impact on all of our, our, all of our cohort. And I think by having those meaningful conversations as a group with everyone, then we're getting those aspects from all of the children and all of the people in that room because that room is not just the teachers, it's each one of those students. Yeah. Um. I wrote down one of the things that she said was talk less um, and ask, listen more. And she was talking about how seeing their full humanity and who they are as a people um, or as an individual, just as a person, which is something that we bring into this podcast and into all of our classes so much, like constantly saying, look at them as benefits, not deficits. Look at them as who they are for their culture, their language. So it's just that constant, like underlying theme, which it's interesting that that has to even be said, but it's something that people aren't trained on, and so it's not necessarily in the forefront of their minds. Even those who are trained on, even are, like, for example, my practicum has someone who was in this program not even two years ago, and they're not practicing those same things. And you can see that the classroom is has a disarray because um, they're not represented, their voice is not being heard, and they're not part of... The conversations and the like they are part of the learning because they're learning but are they really being heard and it's a lot of teachers speaking and not a lot of students speaking right it's that talking at versus talking to or talking with and it reminds me about how our professor Kim Sanchez Baglin has talked to us a lot about the importance of apologizing to students and she always mentions that Kids don't hear that very often. Kids don't hear adults say that they were wrong and sincerely apologize because adult opinion automatically holds a better, a higher value in most classrooms than children's opinions, even though it's their education. So I think really like making sure that we listen deeply 
and that we're actually giving that time for the students to actually talk to each other versus us talking at them, even though we've been, it's been repeated so many times to us, it's going to really make a huge difference to for our class management as well as just understanding each and every student. If we don't understand them, how are we going to teach them? Well, as well as us listening to them as well. Um, I think in Shamim or Dr. Raka's class as well, there was an article about the black student who was constantly fighting against everything that this teacher was teaching because it was like history from white colonizers and history from, you know what I mean? Like every single thing that they were teaching, they're like, this is exactly what we're opposed to. This doesn't represent us. And this isn't the story that needs to be told. It's being told over and over and over again and how they're, they're the ones that are amazing and we celebrate them and we have like days off of school for these people who are horrible people. And why aren't you representing us? And why aren't you, you know, so taking into account what students are saying and what uh, what the underlying, whatever their attitude may be towards your teaching is saying, because sometimes it's not verbal. Sometimes it's just an attitude or a behavior that could be telling you something about what you're teaching or how you're teaching. And that's the other part of listening, is not just hearing their words, but hearing what they're really saying. Yeah, that's what I really mean about understanding. You need to understand the student fully. Yeah. Where they come from, where, what their lives are, it's at home. Because they're much more than the students that are just sitting at the desk every day. They're much more than the name on the roster or the number that's been given to them. Um, and then the last one I want to bring up, she talked about a lot more, but one of the audience questions was teaching about white advocacy how to lessen white guilt. And she started talking about freedom writers and how it's not about who's wrong, but it's about what's right. And brought in actually something that was interesting to me, specifically art making and getting your emotions out through art. That was really an intriguing part for her to bring up. And I had heard of the freedom writers before in history, but I hadn't learned it until I was actually taking college courses at Clark. And it made me think about, yes, if we were to teach white advocacy alongside when we teach about the civil rights movement and along these other moments in history, then the focus isn't on white guilt. It's about how can we fix the problem and how can we be allies instead of an us versus them mentality. And history is always proven for not even just America, but for all around the world, that there are always going to be people who are with people who are allies that are doing stuff we just need to highlight that saying that it's not always been this huge line of division between like for for this example whites and blacks Mm -hmm. there's always there's always been people on both sides like um that have been fighting against or for the same thing Mm -hmm. and like you were saying highlighting those individuals and saying that there has been white people on black side for a long time and we are going to continue to do that and you're going to do that just by understanding and representing the students with books and literature and activities just to be able to help them process everything but also just like it's that classroom culture you have to make sure that you like Shamim said like Shamim uh, opened her classroom up saying I'm not expecting any of you to feel certain ways about this but you're going to feel some of this is going to feel really hard and this isn't about you this is nothing about what you did but this is stuff that's happened in the past 
what can we do that you know right now that you could do to help us remember what has happened as well as what you can do to stop it from happening in the future. And that can look totally different and it literally can be literally sitting in a classroom listening to a black student who needs support and finding ways to support that within their community and making sure that they are getting what they can, not as a white savior complex, but more of like making sure you're giving each and every student the most equitable amount of resources so that they are successful. And also teaching your white students that there has been a certain past around what's going on and that there are stuff that's in place because of all the history that's come along that you are not responsible for, but you sh everyone should be aware of it. Yeah, and, and she was talking about how it's okay for these students to feel guilt and shame and anger. Like, those are fine emotions. Like, you can feel your emotions. You can, um, but sometimes those things are hard as well. So having them talk about characters and these things outside of themselves mm -hmm. can sometimes help them come to terms about talking about themselves in in the sense of like this is a my history just in like, a way just like deanna day talked about in the literature class having first you don't start with actual history of the person you start with concepts of a book that is disassociated mm -hmm. from themselves so they can better understand those um those attributes of history that are just dark and yeah hard. you're not putting yourself out emotionally like yeah. there's less emotional yes, risk less emo and then also once you get to that emotional risk talking about what you said about making sure they have an outlet it could be a journal that they write to you and just let it all out mm -hmm. we could set up a pen you could set up a pen pal for someone who maybe they don't want to write to a white teacher maybe they want to write to a black teacher or someone in the black community or someone that they can actually relate to then set up, make sure you're facilitating, facilitating that conversation. Um, or art, or student discourse, letting them just talk it out to, with one another if they feel comfortable to do so. Inviting families to come in and talk about how they feel. Just like making a huge community and make sure it's a welcoming one. Um, and I do want to mention at the end of that session, she spoke about a book called The Other Talk mm. by Brendan Kiley's. Um, and so if anyone who is listening wants to go check that out, you can go check that book out as well as Renee Watson's all, she's got a ton of books, including the one that I talked about before that won those awards, piecing me together, but she also has children's books along with her young adult novels. She also talked about some websites too. It's called teach this poem that helps. Um, and then also it's a website. And then also we need diverse books website to help you really make sure you have your library in your classroom that is diverse for all your students because it's really good to have those those window books as well as mirror books for those students that you may not have a book diverse enough for them to be able to say that's me in that book or I can relate to that person in that book. Our first breakout session was called Restorative Justice Research Practice Partnership to Design Relational and Healing Focused Practices, which was presented by Shantae Stewart McQueen, who's a professor at PSU. She's been working with first year teachers who she previously had in her elementary ed math courses 
to implement restorative justice practices, specifically in mathematics, which can be a very vulnerable subject for a lot of students. And she focused specifically on cognitively guided instruction within her research, which essentially means that she was working with students both in the restorative justice content, but also working within their inherent thought processes and questions to guide mathematical thinking rather than following specific structured instruction. I know personally, as a math endorsement student, I was very intrigued by all of this, especially her discussions about manipulatives. But I do wonder with you two what your major takeaway or thoughts were in this session. So you were talking about the cognitively guided instruction in math. Um, something that I actually really liked that they were talking about was the learning for understanding, which was that learning that real life application and then the learning as relational is something that we constantly are doing throughout this entire time we've been at WSU is learning about that student culture the funds of knowledge all of those things is really deeply connected which is interesting to me because she's coming from what PSU mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I know that they have a pretty similar elementary education when it comes to the masters at least looking at the two yeah so i'm guessing it might be very similar for the bachelors as well but i'm guessing that they went through all the same things that we went through like learning about clr going through a diversity class going through an el class potentially is the psu a uh really close to social justice and like CLR and the, for their masters when I was looking through to see if I wanted to go there mm -hmm. or if I wanted to continue at WSU they are very closely aligned and in fact their CNI is almost the exact same wording for ours as it is for theirs curriculum yeah curriculum and instruction okay. masters so I'm wondering how closely aligned they are with what we are studying currently and that's sort of what we're trying to do yeah. as well, was what she was presenting on. And I think since our program, it hasn't always had that emphasis. So there are a lot of people in the area who don't have that actual background. When we first started out, we had Insight to Instruction that had all of that CLR embedded into it. And this is her way, because this is her research project. Right. It's her way of helping reintroduce that subject into it and keeping it sustained through her research. And a lot of things that she talked about was like making sure that you are practicing restorative justice, looking at views that all living things are interconnected, uh, making amends with this student, and then also need to repair the victim and the attack attacker. It's not just one way or the other or looking at students differently besides meeting them where they need and then helping them grow as an individual. Definitely, and I think it's interesting the making amends and conflict resolution that you were discussing. Something that tied very closely to that with her was community circles, but community circles being used within the lens of restorative justice. And that was really interesting to me to think about doing so much social emotional restorative justice inside of a math classroom, but also how vital that could be to bring it into something that's a lot of time lacking in humanity. Yeah, because math is such a, it's such a, like, forward way of thinking. Well, the way I learned it, it was a forward way of thinking. Now that I'm in this program, it's a lot different. But taking that beginning, and even the way we do it in, uh, within Tara's class, in our math class, uh, mathematics for elementary teachers, yeah. or the title course, 
we always start with this dot talk where we sit around in a group and we just have a conversation about a problem and we get everyone's way of thinking, the way they process it, and how they handle and problem solve that one like dot, uh, a dot thing or a system of equations or something up to their level. And we just validate everybody's opinion. And Tara never tells us what the actual correct answer is because we're literally just talking through it and getting our math brains working. You can also do it in another way where you have just a conversation. For example, in my practicum experience, there was a fight that broke out last week. It would still be a great way to have that community building when you are having that first five minutes and just talking about like taking a so an SEL, a social emotional learning time for 10 minutes just to have all the students talking and all the students engaged and it not be anything about right answers, wrong answers, just conversations. Yeah, and you were talking about Tara's class and she does a lot when it comes to talking, well, especially because of the books that she has us reading, Impact of a of identity, right? Mm -hmm. the, so the speaker was talking about students identifying as powerful mathematic thinkers mm -hmm. and that their math identity, which is something we're talking about a lot, math identity is going to shape their participation and position the students competently. So you're really putting it on them and saying, this is who you are. You are all math thinkers, no matter what you do. And that's what those dot talks do, or those opening mathematical thinking types of problems do, is really just open up their mind as a mathematical thinker, but in a way that's low stakes mm -hmm. and isn't that stress of, I don't know math, I'm not good at math. And it, so it's pulling away from that. And that's something that I really do like about at least these two programs. It seems that that's really prevalent, especially when it comes to math is all of those things coming together and making it so that the students have that math agency. And one thing I really absolutely loved is when she was talking about restoring the identity, but also challenging the assumptions. So in your classroom, there should be pictures of all types of mathematicians. For math, we're talking about it. But if you're in a science class, it should have an array of looking scientists or mathematicians to be able to really help students of color or maybe if it's even some careers that we have it's heavily male dominated so like having even like females across the room where like what they did what they what their name is and just showing that you are not a label that someone may have given you there's a mathematician in the wall that looks just like me give them mirrors to say you know what i may actually i could do this this is going to be relevant in my life and also another thing that she was talking about is making math relevant to the students, not just randomized, make it actually culturally appropriate for them. So they actually know that they will be using math for the rest of their life. And so it's a great skill to have and that any person who is alive is a mathematician. And I just have a quick last thought here for me. The notice and wonder that we do a lot in a lot of our classes, but what she ended up adding was the notice, wonder and connect circles so and then with a math focus so it was more intentional uh, i thought that was really interesting because that community circle is generally you look at like kindness empathy social emotional and you're learning about each other and having that deeper connection with the classrooms as a teacher but then within the classroom the students are having that de deeper connection with themselves and this is a restorative justice thing so it's taking that that paradigm shift to nurture the re relationships that need that repair. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is really prevalent in math because I don't hear a ton of people saying like, 
oh, I'm not a English language arts person or, oh, I'm not a, I mean, I don't even hear as many people say, oh, I'm not a science person. I hear, I am not a math person, and or that I is like, math. or I hate math, yeah. Or I'm not good at math, it's always, math is one of the ones highest just, up there for yeah. me, I'm, every time. It's either I'm not an artist, or I'm not good at math. Mm, yeah. Or if you're good at math, like you're not really good at English. Like, right. It's either one or the other. We really need that shift, and I think it's really important what she's doing, and I'm hoping that that will happen more in more programs, because if they do have that, then they can pass that on to the people who are going to be teaching the next generations. For our second presentation that we observed, it was on the topic of anti-racist education for Asian American students post-pandemic. Those presenters were Dr. Lin Wu and Olympia Lei. The last name is L-A-I. So Dr. Wu, during this presentation, talked about how Asians have always been discriminated against. And this goes all the way back to the inception of the United States of America. This is like from when there was uh, the Yellow Pearl, and he also talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then even going on to Japanese internment camps during World War II. And then now later, it's more of like uh, the model minority when like technology uh, was booming, so like moved up through time. And then he also talked about that not, not only that there are Asians in America, but we are a country of biracial or multiracial groups. We're not just white. We are Irish and German. We are Irish, African-American. We are just not one thing that we are described. Like he was explaining like when Obama was president, that he's not just a black man. He is black and Hawaiian. Then moving on, then he also talked about that we as teachers, we need to be more proactive in our classes and call things out when things are not being said correctly and be that advocacy for the class. If you don't understand anything about the certain things that are being said about a certain culture, you need to reach out for someone into that culture and have that conversation with and not just be, I think this is right and so I'm going to try to be as justified. But all the stuff that he covered, what stood out most to y'all when you were listening to his lovely speech? So for me, what resonated the most was just that specific part where he was talking about everyone being multiracial and how he even said, like, you, if you are and you've you've been in America for a certain amount of time, you should go visit your ancestral home um, and really connect with that and love that part of you that's been potentially hidden. Now, sometimes it's not that part of you that's been hidden. Sometimes it's the like it's it's one part or another when you have two races you identify when you fill out something on a piece of paper, when you put your race on your driver's license, when you do whatever it may be, you say, I am black. I am Filipino. For me, actually, for a long time, I had a hard time with that identity because I didn't have something that said I was Filipino for a really long time. So I was Asian slash other for most of the beginning of my elementary, if not the entire elementary and through middle school, mine was always Asian slash other and I never got to be Filipino. And then being in a family of, well, being adopted into a family that's white and Jewish and having that not match what I looked like on the outside 
was just that other identity crisis. And so when you have students like that in your classroom, you really need to delve and dig under the surface and understand that they're not just this one person, this one thing that you see physically a lot of the time. Because just like you, Thomas, you are part Filipino, but you look white. No one's going to look I've, at you and be like, you're Filipino. I've never in my entire life has ever marked that I'm Filipino. And I was never raised with any Filipino culture. And when he said that we should always visit our ancestors, paying homage to our ancestors, and, and or not really ancestors, but ancestral land, just being one saying, you know, this is part of where I came from resonated so much with me because I don't classify myself. I was disowned when I was really young. I was raised by a Southern white woman, kind of Yankee, but mostly Southern. Um, and I don't, I've never gotten any of that culture. But when he said that, like I had goosebumps going up my arms and I was like, maybe I should go visit. I don't know. Like maybe I am, but I am multiracial. I'm not even like for my mom, it's not just white she's german irish and italian and then my dad is um or my my biological father is filipino so it's just a very interesting mix and when he like he was speaking about um discrimination i could see the discrimination this past two years and it was so apparent and i know it's not something that is new to the asian race in america and we use this term asian i really don't like it because even he talked about it and I know that you're probably going to talk about it a little bit, that it's made up of um, 40 different races. And that like they're not just Asian. They're Japanese. They're Chinese. They are Indian. They are all of these different things, and all of their cultures are vastly unique. So slumping them all together gives it easier to, like, oh, well, if they're this and clumping them all together, then they must be label after label after label after label which are never good yeah like an umbrella term it's literally just i mean how huge it indian right people don't think oh they think a lot of people will be like oh you're indian but you're not asian but where is india you know like there's so Definitely. many places within a huge continent yeah. And yet you're just all Asian because yeah. that's who you are. So the umbrella terms in general, as you guys mentioned, for one, it like messes with our concept of culture for Asian Americans, but also it makes it a lot easier to hate a lot more people when they're all under one term. Mm -hmm. The Asian Exclusion Act was a way to do this. Uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act, sorry. But we also see it in how we base biases and stereotypes. This can be, like he mentioned, seeing all Asian men as... Um, more feminine or emasculine mm -hmm. and seeing all Asian women as hypersexual or the model minority myth and how that was built to kind of get them to gear towards technology when technology was booming. And specifically with the model minority myth, it was interesting because he started talking about how even these myths that are built on good ideas can be tools of oppression, which I thought was really interesting, once again, to think about in your own classroom. And these positive traits that you might be automatically assuming of a student just because they're Asian. And what does it even mean to be Asian to that student if we're using such a broad umbrella term? Right. And you said oppression. And I also think of when you're not accepting those multi-races, that's a form of erasure. Yes. As well. I mean, it's like you're 
oppressing part of yourself because you're required to deem yourself one thing. Right. Like that specific example he mentioned of a student he had at the university who visibly, when he first met this student on the first day, he could tell that this student was probably of Asian American descent, but when read on the roster, had a very white passing first and last name. Mm -hmm. And he remember he had that discussion with the student throughout the term about his identity and, hey, like, you're not just white. What are you type thing? Or not what are you? That sounds terrible. But, like, where does your family heritage lie? Mm -hmm. And he was able to discuss that one side of his family was white uh, American, but the other side did have Asian American descent. And by the end of the term, that student had actually made it so his last name was hyphenated to include the Asian American last name and his white passing last name which was really interesting because it showed that duality and identity. And the importance of getting to know your students. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that, like I was saying before, that Asian Americans have always been discriminated against. They've always, uh, they've always had those, those stigmas. And like, what's really interesting is that during like World War II, I took a history class in Clark College, and then it was specifically American History too, and then including the Chinese Exclusion Act and up to the Japanese internment camps. And so when discussing this, we found out that they were excluding uh, Chinese individuals. But then once uh, we went to war and war two with Japan, we were like, oh, we aren't racist. We like Chinese. So we, were at, we had a lot of influx of Chinese Americans come into the country and that's why you have a lot of Chinese districts because we weren't racist towards them and they are of Asian descent so it was just a lot of like going back and forth to benefit what we needed as a not necessarily needed as a country but what whatever best fit the narrative of the story we were trying to play and that has progressed further and further along and he even showed a video of like Joe Biden doing it Donald Trump doing it People just saying these blankets, uh, blanket statements around the virus, and these have really affected the the Chinese Americans that are currently been living. They've been attacked. There was thirteen Asian Americans killed on the East Coast at the beginning of the pandemic because mm-hmm. they were afraid, and it's because of the way our government has brought out in the media about what the pandemic and where it came from and they blame a certain uh, thing and they call it the Wuhan virus and all of these things that really there's no actual foundation for them like we had other viruses start out but we never labeled it for them but now that we want to now that we had a pandemic we really hyper focused on it and it became normal to even to the point now we have stop Asian hate altogether. It's always, unfortunately, people of color. Mm-hmm. They always get the short end of the stick. They've always been discriminated against. And we just really, he emphasized how much we need to make sure that we are being extremely aware now at post-pandemic of these stereotypes and of these blanket statements for these students because more than ever, we need to be vigilant and we also just need, like, we need a call to action. And also, we need to follow through and make sure these students are safe. Right. And one of the ways that, sorry, I'll make this short, but one of the ways that he talked about as teachers, we can do this is, yes, highlight and educate about these different horrific things that happened in our past, but also take the time to celebrate and embrace varying countries of 
in Asian culture in your um, in your classroom. And you talked about how there's this stereotype about Asian food specifically, or students being grossed out by their classmates' food, and about bringing in dishes and letting people try things, and how even though that is such a surface level thing, to some people it can create this connection and take away this weird fear of the unknown that exists within children and people as a whole. I feel like what you were talking about, both of you, but Thomas, specifically what you were saying really ties into something that everyone is afraid of. And it's like that systemic, that systemic racism, that mm-hmm. structural racism. And really, he was talking about Asian crit. So mm-hmm. the, you know, critical race theory, I, it's just like no one likes. Boom, you said it. That term, yes, um, it is critical race theory is basically looking at the race and the, where it's been at the beginning and how it's transferred through time and the effects on on it. It's just looking at it. Yeah, I know it's a hard term, it. and I know it has a lot of uh, uh, behind it, but it's yeah. just really. As you hear my hesitation when I'm saying it, even though we've already talked about it on our podcast before, but it's so funny because there is such a pushback when it comes to that theory and the misunderstanding of what it really means because a lot of people take it as being let me push this on you and give you white guilt versus saying can we look at it from the opposite end and see where all of these people of color have been pushed down and oppressed and all of those things so why don't feel guilty. I understand that you sitting in my classroom right now did not create all of this, but it was created and it is real. And it is something that needs to be changed in all the systems throughout the entire world. I feel like all of the systems need to be changed. It's not just in education. Like we see it. We've we, we know what, like what happened when it happened and what can we do to change it? Not that we're guilty for it because I didn't do anything, but also there are part, there are parts that I are not even, that I'm not even aware of that I do that adds to it, that really builds onto it. And it's just, it really, what can, what can we do as individuals to help? How can we be aware? Because I am, I'm an an American. Stop doing it. That's the thing. Like the war that we currently have. Yeah, it's an, it's a replica. Of, like I'm not gonna go into it or anything, but like, if we would have been better at teaching, I feel like and remembering our history, we would stop the same repeating cycle happening over and over and over again. Yeah, isn't that society the, of the world? Isn't that the definition of the insanity? I'm just mm-hmm. saying. Yes. Just saying. But his like I think out of all the ones we listened to, this uh, presenter was the most impactful. Me as an Asian descent or as a Filipino descendant, but also as just understanding from the the times we live in, it's hard mm-hmm. and it's really hard for Asian Americans in our country, just because mm-hmm. they do have a lot of forefront. Even even if it's not explicit biases or racism, when you have when you when individuals put up their mask around them when they're not wearing it and then walk fully around, that's saying something. Mm-hmm. 
Overall, the ORA conference was an amazing opportunity and hopefully the first of many adventures with III. It expanded our views in themes such as restorative justice within mathematics and strategies for serving Asian American students within our classroom post-pandemic with a focus on historical context. Getting to connect with authors, professors, and researchers within the realm of education reaffirmed content that we've heard through our program. We hope to attend the Lilly Conference in Asheville, North Carolina in August 2022 and can't wait to touch base with you after that. Thank you for coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.